Well, hello. Uh, my name's Alex Green, uh, farmer, musician, scholar, and uh, music editor at the Memphis Flyer. I'm here <laughs> to uh, speak today with Robert Gordon, a uh, great Memphis author who has some uh, some new writings and uh, curated music. Um, I thought I'd start with uh, my first impressions of you when we first started hanging out. Okay. And uh, that would be the mid '90s, early '90s. This would have been '89. Excellent. Yeah, going way back. You had just moved back to yeah. Memphis, right? And. Um, I must say one thing that impressed me right at that uh, at that time uh, was that you were able to party. You could really get down. You were willing to get out there on the dance floor and you know shake it. And uh, it wasn't quite what I expected from a kind of writerly type. At the time. <laughs> Although I'm sure you're not the first rock critic who was willing to carry on. Uh, we all know the you know legendary writers like uh, Lester Bangs and all that, but uh, reading your book, which is you know has autobiographical moments, yeah. um, it struck me that this was not always the case. Like it, it seemed like in your teens and high school years, you were not quite the partier. Uh, well, I take the utmost exception to that, Alex. I, I don't know what would have given you that impression. I, I feel like I've, you know, uh, I may not look like a teen anymore, but I've preserved my teen enthusiasm or some of it. Um, you know, uh, I was raised here in Memphis, and um, in this, and in the seventies, the city. I, I, I didn't realize it then, but I realize it now. The city was wide open, and we would come. Downtown was our playground it was an abandoned hellhole and we would just come down and we would leap from roof to roof and go like go into clubs we weren't supposed to be in and out the back doors and up fire escapes and it was just it was really a, a, a playground which is why I think when I encountered things like um, the Panther Burns and Alex Chilton later on who and Panther Burns especially who really liked a, a, a full dance floor you know there was that was like right up my alley it was punk it was danceable, you know, it was local, it had everything I liked. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting because in the book you describe one of your major musical epiphanies uh, as uh, the moment you saw Furry Lewis. Right. Opening for the Rolling Stones at the Levitt Shell, or at that time, no. the Overton Park Shell. Heck no, no man. I wish I'd seen the Stones at the Shell. Oh. This was at Liberty Bowl Stadium. F 50,000 people, not not 500. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the, the cool thing there was it was a big show, outdoor, 4th of July, um, you know, huge speakers. And I think Charlie Daniels opened, and then Jay Giles played, and then we were stuck in the sun for a couple hours, and then the meters played. And I remember reading afterwards, I was like, man, who, we didn't know who the Beaters were. They didn't get any introduction. They just started playing on stage, and, this, and they sounded terrible. And I realized, someone told me later that um, the Stones had made the audio people give the Meters a bad mix because they knew otherwise they'd be blown off the stage. <laughs> I thought that made sense. <laughs> yes, they would have. <laughs> and then we're waiting and waiting and waiting, and it's really hot, you know, long, long days in the summer, and um, Stone's still not on. And I had my back to the stage waiting for my friend who'd gone off to get a couple Cokes hours earlier, kind of looking for him. And I heard 
Furry Lewis strum the guitar and start talking and he had an acoustic guitar so it was unlike anything else that day and his voice was real craggy ah, ah, you know like um and he immediately started telling jokes and playing bottleneck slide guitar and i remember physically turning around and going what is that and that could have been the end of it but then like within a year he appeared at my high school which was odd. I was like, you know, how did that happen? How did the opening act for the Rolling Stones appear at my high school? And an upperclassman gave me his phone number, said, you just call him up. And I called him up and I went over to his house. And actually I have some video, not that I shot, um, but that is uh, available on a commercial release that was shot at Furry's home in the intimate kind of experience I had. And I'm going to brown moon, take that right hand road. Well, I ain't going to stop walking till I get my baby dough. So, so, so that's furry. That was furry uh, playing at home yeah. on his bed. Uh, it was a little two room duplex, and um, I began to go there frequently as a teen. Actually, I began going there before I could drive, and it was and and the the deal was you called him up and he he wanted a, a pint of ten high whiskey, and um, I guess I was fifteen, and it was easier to buy the whiskey than it was to find a ride to that part of town. Um, but, but then I could drive and I started going there often and he got to know me because I came often enough and it just, my experiences in his house, um, shaped how I approached music, which was, uh, he, his living conditions were so different from mine and from anything I'd experienced. He was an introduction to me to poverty. Really, I was a suburban middle class kid, and I'd never been in a poor person's home. And 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 through furry, I began connecting music, and you know, social class and economic circumstances and and history, and place. And it all was revealed to me in furry's blues. And I began looking through those filters at other music, and and that's what I think of. I mean, I'm a music I'm ca- I'm a music writer. I write about music, but I'm not writing as much about the melodies as I am about what the music is evoking for me or telling me about history or social circumstances. And uh, were there other peers of yours who shared this interest, or it sounds like you were pretty much alone in this? I had a friend from high school. He would come over there with me, and a couple other times, you know. And I remember sometimes. I remember one time meeting a couple of French guys on Main Street, tourists, tourists in Memphis in the, in the, it would have been like late 70s, early 80s, you know, it was a kind of an odd thing. And I was like, well, you guys want to meet a blues band? <laughs> you know, and <laughs> I took them over there, I remember. And they were, I can't imagine what they left out of there thinking, meeting some guy who <laughs> threw them in the car, in my car and brought them to a bad part of town. But it, I, I, I would uh, wager, wager they still recall it. And and um, and we all liked 
the blues. I mean, we would hang out. There was a club in town called Birth of the Blues that the house band was all older blues musicians. That's where I met Mose Vinson. He was a barrel house piano player. Got a track, got a piece on him in the book and a track of his on the LP. He was uh, one of the great Beale Street barrel house piano players. I learned later he was the janitor at Sun Records. And he's got a, he played on a few unreleased tracks with James Cotton and a few other people. I think had one record come out while he was at Sun, which is really pretty cool. You know? <laughs> he took the job because he wanted to be near the music. And, um, and it was a world like that. Blues Alley was a club downtown you could go to. That's where I met little Laura Dukes. And um, I was friends with her all the rest of her life. So the blues were a thing. And, of course, the uh, Midtown hippie scene had started the Country Blues Festival at the Shell. Right, at the Shell. In the late 60s. It's surprising, then, that Furry Lewis, this giant, was, even when you met him, uh, which I guess was the mid-70s, yeah. early mid-70s, yeah. Mid, yeah. he was still uh, working for the city? He uh, retired at that point. Hmm. Um, you know, I always heard they denied his pension because he had a wooden leg, and they told him, you know, this was like when Citizens Council people were in government employ. Uh, they said, well, if you had a wooden leg, you couldn't have done your job right the past 30 years, no pension. Now, I've never verified that, but that, that's what I heard from multiple sources. Yeah. I think you could get, I had an LP of Furry's early recordings, 1927 and 1929. That was kind of cool, you know, yeah. um, to think that I'm hanging out with a guy who recorded for, I think, Victor and Kent and all these early things. But still... It was eye-opening. What, what the, the, the trap door that Furry opened to me was that historical blues was living blues in my hometown, my neighborhood, as it were. Yeah. And that was fun. And the Midtown Hippie thing, that was the other key component of my, of my entrance. That's how the Furry opened the trap door, and then Jim Dickinson and Mud Boy and the Neutrons just blew the cover off the door. And because the first time I saw them was at a civic blues festival, you know, like a family event <laughs> and uh, and punk rock was on the horizon. I think it was 78, might have been 79. And Alex Chilton played with them and he just like was raucous as all get out. And then Mudboy took the stage with dancing girls and it was very and just and it was very lascivious. Mm-hmm. And I, I was in the audience trashed. I remember I had to cover one one eye to see straight. The odd thing to me was I could hear Furry's solo blues in Mud Boy in a way that I couldn't hear it in the Stones. Mm-hmm. And so I always thought, man, that's the difference between Mud Boy and Neutrons and the Stones. I mean, one was the Stones wanted to be famous and Mud Boy decidedly did not want to be famous. They wanted to be the, the great band you never heard of, which they succeeded at. But they were, they, unlike the Stones who learned the blues from vinyl records... You know, Mudboy learned it from the blues players, from sitting at the feet of Johnny Woods and and Furry and, you know, Sleepy John Estes and all these greats who were here, who they they revivified the careers for all these people and and gave them and introduced them to people like me who could keep them alive for longer, you know. So it was that combination of the blues and the, and, and, truly blues-based rock and roll that mm-hmm. that set me up for 
a career of uh, harm, <laughs> personal harm. <laughs> I'd like to introduce some very good friends, some very close personal friends of mine, personal friends of mine, my boy and the neutral. First off, this was the second Beale Street Music Festival. We had played the first one, but we sat down and we played the blues, and it was like mostly acoustic, and the dancing girls weren't there, and it was all you know, everything was really nice, nice, and so we were heroes. Well, this year the dancing girls were working. Marcia and Connie were dancing, but they had all their clothes on. I had to wear twelve layers of clothes so that I would never get naked. I could keep taking things off. And in the middle of the first song, Danny came out on stage. You can see it in the video, whispered in my ear, they don't like the rock and roll, they don't like the dancing girls, they're pulling the plug, which was all he had to say to me. I told Irvin, you can hear it on the tape, you know, get off stage or get me off stage. I've got 45 minutes and I'm going to sit right here. <laughs> And I thought, okay, well, we'll just have a little incident here. This will be more fun than playing anyway. I saw two cops down in front of me grinning. And I thought, okay, what the hell? You know, I'm going for it. And I was wondering, do I have time to get a drink? <laughs> and after that, we, we didn't work for a while. That's, that's amazing. Uh, and, of course, that was part of uh, Alex Chilton's wildest period. Yes. It's kind of nihilistic Mud period. Went, uh, during uh, Light Flies on Sherbert, he'd been recording with these guys. So, yeah, this was right around that time. And, 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 and Alex was always an interesting character to me. Initially, you know, I, as a fan, I was just interested because I knew I would see him at the well playing with the Panther Burns, and I, which was a real raucous kind of rockabilly sound. And I knew he'd had a career as the sort of smooth voice crooner in the box tops, um, you know, with a good bluesy foundation. When she wrote me a letter, said she couldn't live without me no more. Listen, mister, can't you see I got to get back to my baby once more? And at that point, I really didn't know his big star stuff so well. I was just getting into that. Oh, I knew Third, which was uh, mm -hmm. the most nihilistic of the stuff. So it all fit in, you know. Yeah. It all, it all fit into a piece. But Alex wasn't like around here as a local hero. He was someone I began to follow, and I really enjoyed his musical explorations and um, befriended him and then was unfriended by him, <laughs> like many of his friends. Yep, same here. <laughs> uh, it all came down to reading your astrological chart. Yes, it right? did. And I, I, re I remember sitting at Arden Studio, seeing his calculation. I swear, you know those like fourth grade solar system things the teachers mm -hmm. got with like a little brass pole and 
nine orbs and the sun in the middle. <laughs> I could see that in his head, spinning, yeah. you know, locking into place. And then the abacus sound as it clicked. And, it, and, and the numbers, it was not a jackpot. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, in the book, I've got a chapter on Alex where it, it's one of my favorite chapters because what I've done with the pieces in this book is everything gets a new introduction yeah. and, and gives it context. And I really like one, one kind of rule I've got is that rules should be broken. So the Alex chapter is the last one, and it's the one where the introduction to the piece is longer than the piece itself, yeah. which I really like. Yeah, a uh, uh, very uh, insightful introduction it is. Uh, it struck me um, reading the book that, in a way, we had parallel tracks in Memphis because uh, in a, uh, you refer to Jim Dickinson as a mentor yeah. of sorts, like and he opened up a lot of worlds to you. And uh, for me, as a musician and a newcomer to Memphis in 88, uh, I fell in with Alex very quickly, and he was kind of my mentor. You know, in light of our you know, involvement with both Alex Chilton and Jim Dickinson, I was wondering uh, how you saw their differences and, and and their similarities, you know, they uh, certainly both had an appreciation of amateurism and spontaneity and uh, chaos, even uh, in music. Uh, and effort. I think that 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 they that there was a you know effort over artistry, effort over perfection, mm-hmm. in a way. Uh, to you know, they liked that sense of um, art or expression that couldn't be contained. Mm-hmm. And so it didn't matter if it came out in, in you know, in, in proper melody or time as long, which is why the Panther Burns were so interesting for them. They both liked working with, with Tav because, as Tav told me when I saw him a couple weeks ago, he referred to his erratic guitar style, you know. And, 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 and I think that's what both Alex and Jim liked. And I think they also liked... And then they, and then Alex changed, I think. But they liked studio experimentation. They liked mm-hmm. working with sound and layering and doing different things. And then when Alex came back, really from Feudalist Tarts on, which was like '84, mm-hmm. everything was sort of in the documentary recording style. He didn't, he wasn't as interested in creating textures in the studio. I really think almost without exception, that everything he did after that on a record could be done exactly on stage. Mm-hmm. Whereas for most everything prior to that, maybe the box tops excluded, everything was really a work of this studio that they could perform, but it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't sound the same, whereas later in life Alex's records were like that. Yeah, which makes the few times in that latter period of his career where he did stretch out in the studio all the more remarkable like uh there's a track rubber room uh-huh. where he does allow things to get kind of echoey and crazy uh-huh. and, uh, good point um but it strikes me that uh jim dickinson did the same thing I late mean, in, and uh, well and and late in his career really late um mm-hmm. on his own records i think when he would still produce he was into working it but his own records, which he didn't produce, 
are really kind of um, documentary style productions. It seems to me that what Jim and Alex share in that is they were they were both not Sherpas but but guides. You know, they were song guides. Like I mm-hmm. like I, I know I, I learned a lot about you know really un, relatively unknown artists from recordings Alex did. I would like we'll go. I'd know this isn't his song. Whose is it? Go back and find that person, I, someone I was unfamiliar with. Then you could explore a whole new, you know, wormhole. And the same, I think Jim was doing a very similar thing with his records, covering kind of obscure stuff, writing some. But yeah, it's true. I liked them. You know, those records mm-hmm. are okay, but but they're nothing like when they went all out, like the full the full on effort when that's yeah. in there, man. They, they, those are some great records. Jim's first solo record, Dixie Fried, stands up entirely. Oh, yeah. You know, as a great, great recording. The Big yeah. Star albums, where they, where they, you know, all three of them, where they work all that, all those sonic mm-hmm. layers. Yeah, it's great. I think it's in an interview with Jim that you, um, that he says, really, Big Star's third was the last time Alex really gave uh-huh. a performance his all. Yeah. Do you agree with that? I guess so. I mean, I guess. The the immediate thought I've got is like flies on Sherbert, which is one of my favorite records, and it is I think his performances are all there, but those performances are less heartfelt and mm-hmm. more physical. <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. you think about things like he bumps the mic and they keep that in, you yeah. know. So it's not whereas Big Star Third is this achingly beautiful depressing intimate expression by an artist yeah third is the china and the bull shop of art <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it was visceral and ironic at yes. the same time yes yeah. but heartfelt <laughs> yeah yeah aside from this kind of aesthetic of, of jim dickinson's you know if if he was a kind of mentor i know you had discovered you know s- people like Furry and Mose Vinson on your own, even before you met Dickinson. So what did he bring to your outlook? What kind of doors did he open? Well, well Jim loved Memphis music and, and he loved, and, and he loved to wax philosophy, uh, philosophical about it. Yeah. And, and that really struck chords with me and, you know, saying things like, well, like about the expression, you know, his appreciation for, for the amateuristic, the, the love of the mistake, the, mm-hmm. the love of the mistake over perfection. You know, I wasn't, when I, when I think of my Rolling Stones concert, I don't remember, you know, what I think of is Furry Lewis. It wasn't mm-hmm. any of those popular things that were there that day. And I think it's because the pop stuff is people trying to sound familiar in a way hey i want to get on the top of the charts by sounding like everybody else and what memphis does i think is says you you may have you may get to the top of the charts you may never see the charts but you're going to sound like only you and that's what happened with elvis right i mean elvis Mm -hmm. set out to croon like perry como he met sam phillips who, who heard him trying to uh, rejuvenate his tired sidemen, Scotty and Bill, after an all-day recording session, 
Elvis did by singing, you know, That's All Right, Mama. And Sam busts through the door and goes, what are you doing? And Elvis <laughs> goes, I'm just kidding around, you know. And Sam goes, oh, no, back it up. Find a place to start, you know. So it's Sam affirmed for El- Elvis that it was okay to not sound like Perry Como. I'm not interested in the Perry Como thing. Perry's doing that. What do you do? Mm-hmm. And Jim affirmed that for me. Yeah. You know, he was my Sam Phillips. I, I I certainly see Jim's appreciation of Memphis music history and the kind of forgotten artists of the area, the whole uh, area, really. And uh, I think of that in contrast to a kind of attitude that was very prevalent in the 80s and maybe the 70s, too, which was a kind of uh, love-hate relationship with Memphis. You know, uh, Jim saying famously with Mudboy, I found a new way to spell Memphis, Tennessee, M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E. And there was a kind of disdain for the the middle-of-the-road quality of Memphis, even as he celebrated, you know, what was coming out of it. I think that just like the blues needed the abusive plantation owner to be formed, Memphis rock and roll needed the uh, benighted, um, racist, greedy, white council, citizens council people who ran the city uh, to react against. Yeah, yeah. You know? It's kind of like that short that you filmed uh, about Mose Allison with David Leonard, where one of you asks him, what's the key ingredient of growing up in Mississippi that leads to all this great music? And Mose's reply is humiliation. (laughs) (laughs) uh, I've forgotten that. That is so great. (laughs) Yeah. Mose, he laid, I remember that now. He laid his, he thought. Yeah. Two seconds, and then he yeah. had his answer, and he's absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so that leads me to a bigger question. Uh, uh, you know, people are still trying to, um, in a way, compete with Nashville uh, as kind of branding Memphis as a music city. Certainly there's greater appreciation than ever of the musical past of Memphis. When I met you, Stax was about to be demolished, and uh, certain people I know jumped the chain link fence to dig around in there, but that's another story. But the, you know, uh, there was this neglect. Yeah. And uh, I wonder if the musical uh, fecundity, the creativity of this area, can still thrive uh, when the music is respected and honored as it uh, as people are trying to do now. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? And I, and, and I think the answer is to be determined. Yeah. Um, what, what has happened? It's interesting to see what's happened here in the 21st century, um, where when all around the world recording studios have closed because everybody can do it in their own bedroom on a computer. You don't need a you know, room with 20-foot ceilings. Um, in Memphis there's still quite a number of active recording studios and it's because people believe I was going to say people believe the myth, but it's, you know, but it's not a myth necessarily, you know, people believe that 
Um, I always, there's an interesting thing like Vegas. You know, people go to Vegas and they allow themselves to sin in ways they would never allow elsewhere. And then it stays in Vegas and they go back and they live these normal lives. And I think people come to Memphis and allow themselves an openness of expression and also a recept, an open reception to, uh, to other things that they don't normally take. And they'll, they're willing to go you know, to the poor side of town or, mm-hmm. or, and, and I always think, man, you can do this. This is happening in your hometown. You know, mm-hmm. you don't have to come to Memphis for this. It's great that you come here and you get exposed to it here, but take it home. That's actually a point I make in the book. You know, yeah. Memphis is a verb. You can Memphis at home. <laughs> you know, we, we love you coming here, spend your tourist dollars, but, um, but take, take the idea home. And, and so I, I think that, the artists who continue to come here, one, we 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 remain a sleepy town. I every the rare times I'm out at nine o'clock in the morning between eight forty-five and nine fifteen in the morning, rush hour, you know, and I'm on one of the two major thoroughfares, and I squint and see a, another car way up there. <laughs> I really cherish my, you know, all that Memphis has to offer at those times. And, and yeah. I think that, and I think cheap housing here too is drawing people, you know, who want to do this artistic musical thing, but can't afford Austin, can't afford Nashville. And for better or worse, they're coming here. But that's what Memphis, we, we're living in a way on our history, but at the same time, we're forging a new present. I like the way I, uh, my friend Andrea Lyle turned me on to this um, hip hop crew called Unapologetic, and they've got mm-hmm. an app. I recommend everyone go download it for free in their yeah. favorite app store. And um, and they're really, you know, it's 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 a very easy sound. It's um, it's smart. Mm-hmm. It's attractive. You know, it's hooky. It's fun. And it's kind of uh, boundary breaking. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are a lot of roots in hip hop, but they're willing to. They have their antenna out for different influences. Yes. And yeah. It's it is a great uh, continue. Con- and, con- and, and so you know, in that notion of uh, artists in Memphis forging new new territory, they're in it. You know, that mm-hmm. that that's what I see it. Even though they're a hip hop group, they continue the tradition because the tradition is not rockabilly. The tradition is finding your inner artist and trusting it. Yeah. Uh, speaking of uh, the future and where we're headed with all this, um, and, and not to keep bringing it back to Jim Dickinson, but in a way, his spirit abides. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, it colors the whole work here, especially. Um, World Boogie is coming. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jim says it all the time, and and his kids, his for those who don't know, his children are the two core guys in the North Mississippi All-Stars, Luther and Cody Dickinson. That saying is said by a lot of people, and I think it means what you want it to mean. Maybe they have a particular meaning for it. You know, it's sort of the alternative to doomsday is coming to me. It's like, you know, because World Boogie, that's what's different. It's not Boogie is coming. Memphis was always a boogie town. I remember for years going to concerts at the, uh, at the Mid-South Coliseum, and some guy in the audience would yell, Boogie. 
and like some entertainers who were coming through heard it so much. I remember one goes, "Oh, Boogie's here tonight," you know. <laughs> but 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 so um, World Boogie implied reaching out to uh, unfamiliar and distant places and bringing an amalgamation of everything good. You know, mm -hmm. the big party mm -hmm. will arrive. Now, that big party depends on your interpretation of it. You know, it's either going to be a lot of fun or it's going to be no fun at all, but it's going to be big. <laughs> <laughs> to me, uh, it always implied this idea promoted by uh, a scholar at Yale University, Robert Ferris Thompson. Uh, I think he's an art historian and a kind of ethnomusicologist. And his big thing is that the sound of Africa and a kind of uh, ethics in the, the rhythms of Africa are seeping across the world and uh, changing all of humanity. And the, the, his proposition is that World Boogie has come, and he has a passage in one book about an alien, you know, tuning into the radio stations as they come into orbit around Earth and saying, "Wow, the you know all of these people are such huge fans of Africa. Look, you know, listen to all the <laughs> the beats coming out of that." And uh, so, to me, World Boogie kind of implies that a, a kind a, a a distinct thing about Boogie. That, that is kind of being exported to the rest of the world. One argument against that, I mean, and, and this is an argument that um, blues scholars, which I don't consider myself one, uh, like to argue about. This is why I don't consider myself one, because I don't like to argue about it, you know. <laughs> it's like, is the blues based in Africa, or is, an American, or is it an American form? Yeah. You know, and you get into the blues, and you immediately see its connection to, um, you know, Scottish, kind of what became country music and bluegrass, those ballads, mm -hmm. um, blues wouldn't be the same without that. So it's a melding. But I think, you know, you also hear, you know, when you hear Ali Farquhar or the different uh, Senegalese musicians or Nigerian musicians, there's a bluesy thing that they're doing that no doubt must have traveled and, it, you know, on the slave ships and remained. And, of course, the, the importance of drums in Africa that wasn't, you know, bluegrass was defiantly against drums. So yeah. um, there's a, I think, an argument. To, to me, there's an African influence, but blues is an American form. But I like that, 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 that you know, everybody's the alien. <laughs> I love always thinking about an alien tuning into, you know, whatever I'm doing. I, I love that thought. Yeah. I love, you know, hey, if an alien watched one of my films, you know, could they get it? Because that's an interesting way to look at your work. Does it make sense if you don't speak this language? Well, one thing I appreciated, you know, speaking of Africa, was the, uh, um, the kind of African aesthetic to, I guess, folk culture of Mississippi and uh, the the kind of um, voodoo-like charms and things. You can still get it, Schwab's, the kind of blending of Christian and African religion. And uh, I, I remember seeing a video you did with Tav Falco uh, where that's, that figures prominently in it. I, I mean, it's basically a, it's a rock and roll song, but there's great footage of Tav going into a Schwab's and kind of 
rubbing his hands maniacally, looking at all <laughs> the uh, strange candles and potions. Robert Ferris Thompson talks about that as a direct influence of Africa on Southern African American culture. And uh, but we're nearer to 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 Haiti than you know Africa for that influence, I think. And 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 yeah. and but you know I think it, I think those kind of griot charms came over, yeah. uh, no doubt. You know, I mean, it wasn't like, of course, when ships of African people arrived here, they brought what they knew with them. So that stuff was definitely implanted. fun video on the Panther Burns 10th anniversary when they'd kind of polished themselves up a little bit. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was one of my first music videos shot on film. I, I brought another piece of video, which I, I'd like to talk about for a second. Yeah. Because um, it's another one of the chapters in the book and the, the guys on the LP. And this guy, I made a documentary uh, about Jerry McGill. You talk about celebrating the unheralded. Yeah. Uh, McGill released 145 in his whole lifetime. It happened to be on Sun Records. He happened to be the last sort of 50s rock and roller son to son. And, uh, and getting on stage and in the spotlight made him aware that he was much more comfortable in the shadows. With, and he started meeting, in the nightclubs, he started meeting criminals, boosters, robbers, that kind of thing, and um, hung with them. He's got a an arrest record, like, I got, I, I show, have pages of it in the documentary. I mean, it's like, it's pages and pages long <laughs> in typed, you know, 1960s typing. Uh, but he was a really fascinating guy because, in a way, he embodies that Memphis spirit. Jim Dickinson always appreciated him because uh, he would, he lived on the lam for so long. I tried to find him in prison once to uh, know how to properly credit him in another documentary called Stranded in Canton. And it turned out I couldn't, though I knew he was in a Florida state prison, his second of three prison terms, um, I couldn't find him because he was serving it under an alias. <laughs> couldn't do that in the computer age these days, but, you know, he could pull it off then. I, I was, was very impressed by that. But this video is from the first day we met him, and... We talked to him on the phone. He'd surfaced from prison. He'd seen my book. He tracked us down, me and a filmmaker, another filmmaker friend of mine down. And so he was out of prison from his third term and wanted to make and had been diagnosed with cancer and wanted to make some recordings before he died. And um, so we met him the day before he was going to make the record to shoot him and see it, how he worked. We knew he was great on camera in the 1970s because Bill Eggleston had filmed him and he was great in Stranded in Canton. 
and I think this clip shows you why we stayed with him for the next 10 weeks. Um, and it may hint at why at 10 weeks we had a leap from the, from the exercise because uh, otherwise we were going to be dead. I had to jump off that train. Yeah. <laughs> You'll be hard pressed to figure out who to kill when you're riding with me and Jerry McGill. Might be his girlfriend, might be his brother. So drunk he couldn't tell one from the other. <laughs> Jerry McGill was a, basically a bank robber. I relieved the American public banking system of probably close to a million dollars. My name is Jerry Lord McGill. This is my last will and testament. There's three witnesses in this truck. That's Dr. Herbert Brewer. He is my master. He's a chiropractor. This is my love, Joyce Rossick. She likes flowers and shit. Let me hold it. I'm a good photographer. Okay, this is Paul Dwan, and I'm also a witness to Jerry's last will and testament. Anybody want a dog tranquilizer? Where'd you get those? From a dog. You have cancer? No. I do. Lord, this cancer's killing me. Lord, this cancer's killing me. Stick that knife in long and deep and hold for best cause I can't sleep. Lord, this cancer's killing me. Killing me. I got lung cancer from smoking a pack of Marlboros a day for 50 years. My whole attitude changed about life because it might not have much longer, you know what I'm saying? And if I go out and croak, I want to do something. So I asked God to let me make some good music. Because <laughs> you make good music, and then you die, you become famous. What are you going to do with this? It's too late, man. You know, you had your chance. Look in the mirror at yourself, you stupid jerk. You have to have 15 people taking care of you. A drug addict musician. Oh, please don't be that. I've got cancer. It hurts. It's called dialogue. But it ain't none of your fucking business whether it's legal or not. I'm going to grab chicken and spin God is gonna heal me, you dirty motherfucker. Fuck you. Yeah. I've stuck a pistol in my mouth a dozen times, cocked it, put my finger on the trigger. Don't hit your brakes like that, stupid. Women bit the apple. They started all this shit. Fucked the whole world up. Still fucked up. Oh, cannibal bitch. God damn it, I'm tired of it. Jerry, up. shut up. Oh, no, it's... Uh, you promised me. Promise me. Shut up. Kiss my... Jesus Christ, Jerry. God damn it. Jerry.
So uh, that's one of my, uh, his track on the LP is one of my favorites. It's really a stunner because you've got his uh, very raw delivery backed up with Mud Boy, who are both raw and polished in their own way. They were exactly they were virtuosos uh, in their own way, and then suddenly you hear Alex Chilton chiming in on the chorus. <laughs> Everybody's there. <laughs> what a microcosm of of Memphis. Uh, when was that recorded? That was in the early mid seventies, I think. Mm-hmm. Dickinson would. Uh, Dickinson recorded it with Mudboy behind him and then carried the tape around for a while, adding backing vocals whenever he would encounter whoever he oh, needed. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I love that because it has – it is a real soundscape. You know, it's not just a documentary mm-hmm. re- recording. And I also love it because Lee Baker plays guitar on it like – it sound, like like if you strung your guitar with barbed wire, this is what it would sound like. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's real bluesy but so sharp and – and perfect for Desperados Waiting on a Train, which is a perfect song from McGill, who's had this outlaw life. Yeah. Was that somewhat autobiographical for him? He's like singing about his father? Or well, something? it's a song written by Guy Clark, but it's as, oh, okay. if, it's as if Guy Clark had met Jerry McGill and composed the song. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. De- very definitely. And I, I, that must have been about the time of Stranded in Canton when yeah. Uh, yeah. Bill Eggleston was shooting all this footage on a portable sony yeah video camera yeah it kind of explains uh uh, i know we've talked about alex chilton's fascination with the kind of rougher side of life in the 70s and danny grafland yeah his bodyguard yeah carried a gun and was just kind of a rough character but uh in a way it was preserving that criminal edginess the criminal yeah. element, you know, is um, it adds an edge, and 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 music without an edge is often really not very interesting at all. So uh, that makes me think about the current day uh, and lo- music losing its edge. Not that we need mobsters in the industry, uh, you know, they're probably still there, but uh, <clears throat> they're certainly hidden, and it's more of a domesticated process. And I think so is music making, and uh, uh, it makes me wonder, um, you know, is music losing its edge, you know, in the, in the past 20 years or so? Or I don't think of it that way. You know, mm-hmm. what I, what the, the change to me is like there's so many avenues to get out there now, ways to get out there, mm-hmm. that it, and the audience is so divided it's not like before where there was mass consumption, you know, mm-hmm. now there's consumption, but, but everybody, it's a lot of little ponds and bigger ponds and there's just, and the ponds aren't connected, mm-hmm. you know? So it's hard, it's hard to get traction to get anywhere. And there's also freedom in that because you can do whatever the heck you want. You know, it doesn't matter yeah. if it depends on your goals, but it gives you, you know, that you can make, the weirdest music you want to make and post it and it's there for people to hear. Then you can try and draw traffic to it, you know, and try and let it grow from there. So there's this, I don't think, I don't think music is losing its edge. I think um, you just have to search more to find a variety of, of things. 
Yeah. I, I like that. <laughs> uh, and I also like about the current day, we still have giants from past eras among us. And uh, I know you've really helped connect younger players with some of the classic players of Memphis. Um, uh, Sean Marshall, Cat Power, right. is a great example. Okay. <laughs> and uh, it, really, she's just one among many uh, people coming here to cut, uh, as you mentioned earlier, at some of the classic studios with some of the classic players. Uh, Kate Brennan from California came out here specifically to work at Ardent and play Chris Bell's guitar and the you know, various instruments they still have at Ardent. People are working at Phillips again like never before. Yeah. And, of course, Royal Studio is undergoing this huge uh, kind of renaissance. Right, the high records place has now become like where Bruno Mars cuts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so uh, I know you have personal experience with Frazee Ford and Sean Marshall. I wonder if you could talk about combining those elements, uh, the young with the old soul veterans. I was very pleased to be asked by Cat Power to connect her with the high records guys because it meant that my work well, – well, we had met earlier, so she knew that about me. But it indicated that my work was getting out to people far and that I hadn't thought of being that connecting person, but I was thrilled to be because I knew the old guys. I knew they wanted work. Back then, that was probably – what was that? Uh, early nine, er, early uh, 2000s. 2000s. Mm-hmm. And um, – and and things have picked up for them a lot since for the high records alumni and some of the older players around town are getting a lot more attention. Um, but, yeah, I was really, really thrilled that I was thought of as the connector. And and one result of that was a video I made with Cat Power um, where we got some of those guys. Teeny's in the video. Teeny Hodges, the guitarist from high records uh, who co-wrote a lot of the Al Green hits. And um, Steve Potts, who took Al Jackson's place in Booker T and the MGs, he's in in the video. And, you know, Doug Easley and some of the guys from Lucero were playing with Sean at the time. We put together a great band behind her, the Memphis Rhythm Band. And uh, and we made a video called uh, Lived in Bars, shot it at one of my favorite watering holes, the Lamplighter, which, which I never... It's like it's like Rufus Thomas or Furry Lewis. You never think it's going to go away, and I understand it might be going away. But uh, I thought it was too precious to name in my first book. It came from Memphis because I didn't. In case you know, you don't know it's your first book. You don't know what's going to happen. I was like, well, I don't want to spoil the lamp. I need to preserve the lamp lighter. You want your hole in the wall to stay a hole in the exactly. Hotel strings and ships that sail. We swim with sharks and fly with aeroplanes in the air. Sitting in the trunk, it's the marching wheelchairs. Open the blankets and give them some air. Swords and arches, bones and cement. Light in the dark of the innocent of men
that and i love that you captured the old lamplighter yeah uh decor <laughs> we strung lights we lit it by putting uh christmas lights on the ceiling and when the owner saw it how 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 lustrous and rich the um tobacco had made the color of her <laughs> ceiling i was awestruck by its beauty but she when she got her lease next time she made them put new tiles up there i was like no that was priceless patina yes Uh, yes the book uh features a lot of beautiful photographs uh i was able to because i've been doing this so long and rummaging through people's closets and drawers for so long this was a great opportunity for me to to get unseen photographs into a visible place and um and i focused on a few photographers in particular pat rayner and tav falco a lot of people know tav's musicianship but he's a great mm-hmm. photographer too and and the two of them uh worked together in the 70s in memphis shooting video uh so and they were documenting uh sort of memphis's lost decade mm-hmm. the uh the post boom underground which is what i was coming up in and and so it was really great to get to show those and and also some other uh you know i don't think any photo in here i don't think any photographer in here really is like very well known and most of the images are are never before seen but they're all so powerful and um yeah i took i took memphis rent party as an opportunity to try to get a lot of things oh also like in terms of the text I had written a story once on Mama Rose Newborn, the mother of the great jazz pianist Phineas Newborn and great jazz guitarist Calvin Newborn. Now, it's hard enough to sell a piece on a jazz player, but their mom? 
You know, I didn't even <laughs> shop it. I just wrote it and put it in a drawer. And as I was putting this book together, I was like, oh, man, I've got this great piece to go back to. And it was a perfect thing to do. And I got to show some great uh, photos that go along with it, including one of Calvin and his mom from an Olin Mills studio. Yeah. So it was a real treat. And, I, and, and the album's got uh, a great Calvin newborn live track on it, uh, previously unreleased, like the book. Um, about half the record is previously un, un, unreleased. And you can get the record. Um, Fat Possum Records put it out. Great label. Um, I've always liked it. Talk about an edge. They, they've recorded some blues records, blues records with a really sharp edge. Yeah. And, uh, and so you can find it on their website and wherever fine records are sold. And, and the book is out through Bloomsbury, who published my Stax book, Respect Yourself, and um, widely available. I would say some of the tracks on here are like photographs. You just happened to record uh, Junior Kimbrough yeah. at, at, at his house. He yeah. had a house party. Right? Yeah. That's a really... It's cool. Brilliant. It's cool because yeah, album. you can feel the room. Yeah, on yeah. that track in particular. Yeah, no, it's deep, man. And the photographers you use had a certain, um, you know, hell bent for leather attitude. Exactly. Like Trey Harrison. Yeah, would just go there with you. And yeah, he would aesthetically he'd go there and kind of push the limits of uh, you know what to capture and some great moments of him uh, interacting with. Charlie Feathers. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was funny where there's a piece, there's a coda piece in here where where um, Trey, the photographer, Trey Harrison, I, I become, he becomes the protagonist. I'm not, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm now, I'm, the way for me to get back in Charlie's good graces is to, is to ride with Trey. And it's all because when Trey lived in a duplex in Memphis, on the other side of the duplex was Charlie's son, Ricky Feathers. And so Trey had, and Trey and, and Ricky had a pet pig <laughs> and the pet pig died and Trey helped Ricky bury the pet pig in the backyard. And so when Charlie had his only major label record come out, Trey called him up to see if he could do a photo session. And Charlie was like, oh, I don't know. I think you better, better talk to my manager. And, and Trey brought up, he said, you know, I met you once over at that duplex on Metcalf and Charlie goes, Oh, isn't that where Ricky had that pet pig? And Trey goes, I helped Ricky bury that pet pig in the backyard. And Charlie goes, Well, I would think you'd come over here about 2 30. <laughs> and I rode. That was my entry back into Charlie's good graces. One of the standout tracks is Jerry Lee. Now, I, I have a particular relationship with the song Harbor Lights. Because I remember the day Sam Phillips died, all of us in the Raining Sound, the band I was in at the time, were you know huge Sam Phillips fans. And we had this kind of reverent moment where we put on Elvis's recording of Harbor Lights, and it was just so eerie, and it's kind of a crooner mm -hmm. tune, uh, uh, you know, very... Tentative. You can hear, it's like his first recording, I think, one of his first recordings, Elvis's. Yeah. And you, and you hear that guy trying to find his way. Yeah, and, and yeah. Which gives it the power. Yeah. It's not, if he'd sung it, if he'd sung it smooth, it might not have been so great, but you can hear the reach, the effort. Yeah, yeah. So then, uh, imagine my surprise when I put the <laughs> track on from... 
Robert's LP, and it's Jerry Lee Lewis doing that song uh, in his own in inimitable way. What were the circumstances around that recording? It, it was a particular so, time. So Jerry Lee is involved in this because I have a great piece I did on him uh, for Playboy magazine when he was making the record called Last Man Standing. I think that ended up being the final name. And um, over a period of about six or eight months, I would visit recording sessions. And in the end, I rode with him on the bus up to Nashville and a gig at the Ryman Auditorium and back where the climactic volcanic scene occurs. Um, so, it, which was really great. And all that time, I was thinking, when am, when am I going to get my interview with Jerry Lee? And about three quarters of the way through, constantly asking for the interview, his manager for the interview, I realized, man, the access I'm getting here is telling me a lot more truth than my conversation with Jerry Lee will. I don't need an interview. You know, you mm -hmm. make your art, you make your, your, your work out of what you get. Mm -hmm. And this is what I was getting, and it was good. So then the track um, comes from the Knox Phillips sessions. There's a whole uh, CD out of those sessions this is my favorite track and i actually went back to the raw material this was recorded when jerry lee was at the end of his nashville phase and they weren't letting him play piano on his records anymore he'd made his country comeback playing piano and singing and then they'd slowly sweetened him until he could, they wouldn't allow him to play piano anymore and and he was so angry about it they would ship a master tape a treacly master tape down to Knox Phillips at the Sam Phillips Recording Service, and and the the deal was Jerry Lee was supposed to come in and, and croon to it, and so Jerry was would have to vent his anger before he could do these tunes, and Knox just started recording. You know, it was his recording studio. He could it was just tape, and so for years these sessions were rumored, and um, in the raw tapes you can hear Jerry Lee begin it as a croon. You know, and I swear it takes like, I think it's the third take. It's not very many takes before it becomes the most rock and raucous tune you've ever heard. And I've asked a couple people deep into this kind of thing, and, and they are unaware of any non-crooning harbor lights. But Jerry Lee makes it sound like it's never been anything but a, but a live wire rock and roll song. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. That's a, it's one of the highlights of the album, and uh, so is the uh, previously unreleased uh, version of Alex Chilton with the Randy Band. Yeah. Uh, most people in the world won't know about the Randy Band. Right. They were a fixture at the well. Yeah, the midtown scene of, of Memphis in the late 70s. They had a great songwriter. They had this punk rock sensibility as punk rock was coming around, but they also had a real melodic uh, thing about them and and real edgy and Alex mm. would sit in with them and like this song him doing uh, Johnny Too Bad which is a track off the Jimmy Cliff Heart of the Come soundtrack um, it's actually not a Jimmy Cliff track but it's off that soundtrack uh, he sat in with the Randy band and, and 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 they'd never played the song before he kind of you know Walk, uh, talk through the chords with them and they break into it and it's killer and Alex is great yeah. and and you hear like you know you hear the mistakes in the song because they've never played it before it, to me it's undiminished in its in its in its vitality and um, 
and it's a thrill. And it's actually the song that motivated the LP. I'd been listening to that on a cassette for years, and I knew the guy who owned the master, and I knew Alex's sister who runs his estate, and I, and I presented it. I said, would you, you know, what do you think? This, this seems like something that could come out. And when she said yes, then I knew I had to make a soundtrack to the book. Yeah. It really captures uh, something about his aesthetic. You know, he it's ragged but right, but it's definitely right. He knows the song and he delivers it. Yes. You know, even with all the extraneous flub notes, doesn't matter. Because he could, he could really channel a song, and when he liked a song, he would learn it uh, inside and out. You can, uh, you can just hear that all coming together in his own spontaneous way. And, and this guess, is before the distant irony that we were talking about earlier, Alex's yeah. distant irony. And, but it's interesting, too, because it's on the precipice of that at the end he says anybody else out there know any songs yeah it's like what he's getting what's giving him a thrill is to play with people who don't know who don't know how to play who don't know how to play that song yeah so that you know i guess because he's been a you know teen idol he's been a uh rock and roll should have been and and now the industry is his to make what he wants of it he's done it their way twice screw him you know he's gonna do it his way i would say in conclusion that story is memphis as fuck in the words <laughs> of, a, of a great t-shirt yeah and uh, a meme of the current age yeah and so are you oh well <laughs> <Shit>. <laughs> thank you alex thank yeah. you diddy it's nfl draft season and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.